Welcome to CoinGeek Conversations. Now, nobody's complaining that there's a shortage of data in the world these days, but it could surely be used better and turned more efficiently into useful knowledge to help people in both the public and private sectors make better decisions. My guest this week is working on that problem through his company, Geospot. So welcome, Richard Baker. Thank you, Charles. Really delighted to be here. You're listening to CoinGeek Conversations with Charles Miller. I should start off with today's news, which is to congratulate you on a big investment that has been announced, which is being led by Enchain. So what sort of a milestone does that represent for Geospock? Well, uh, on a number of levels, Charles, it's a really significant milestone for us. Uh, obviously, I have to say, to start with, um, trying to raise money as a UK kind of startup scale-up company in the background or the backdrop of COVID has been incredibly difficult. You know, you can't go and meet your investors face-to-face and everything's been hanging, been Google Hangouts and, and Zoom calls. But I, I guess equally then to try and find the right investor for deep tech uh, for the development of new markets is also very difficult. And so we're delighted that Enchain is the perfect strategic investor. They understand deep tech. They have a very similar view of where the world is going from a big data or extreme data point of view. So uh, tremendous. Well, great. Let's go back into a little bit into the history of Geospock. Um, you're based in Cambridge, and there's a sort of academic flavor to your origins, I think, because your co-founder, Steve Marsh, has talked about the original work that was done on which your technology is based started as an attempt to mimic the brain. Now, what what does that mean exactly? Well, I'm not sure I'm the best qualified person for this really, <laughs> Charles, but uh, Steve is just such an amazing character. He, he's frustratingly young, firstly, um, in early 30s. But uh, yes, indeed, back in 2010, 2011, he was doing his PhD in computer engineering at Cambridge. And uh, he set about with the challenge of building a a supercomputer uh, to emulate one second of human brain function. And uh, believe it or not, back in 2011, 2012, the kind of mighty supercomputer that was on the planet at the time was the IBM Blue Gene supercomputer. And so Steve took an approach to building his own hardware. So he, he will talk to you in the pub about things like FPGAs and... Uh, he, he's a silicon designer, so he can he can design chips. But ultimately, he set about to look at how you would run kind of what he will refer to as neuromorphic hardware, how you deal with uh, extreme data sets. And so his work led ultimately to the engineering principles that are now in the core product, which is Geospock database, Geospock DB. And uh, he took what he learned in hardware and ultimately morphed it into an all software solution. And you've also gone from inside the brain to really the whole world, because you've been talking about extreme scale data environments. What does that mean exactly? Well, I, I think maybe for, for our listeners, viewers, it's, it's a case firstly of saying, okay, well, I think many people understand that the human brain is ultimately a mesh of neurons. And so Steve really was looking at the fact that as you try and emulate one second of human brain function... Uh, uh, he found really that communication was the bottleneck in how you share information in a in a kind of a mesh 
system. And so when he looked at the world of computing and how we were beginning to deal with big or extreme data sets, uh, the challenge really was it doesn't really matter how fast you make the processor and it doesn't really matter how big you make the storage. There is a fundamental challenge between how you get things out of storage through the processor and to ultimately those people that want to use it. And that, that in computer science terms, is something known as the von Neumann bottleneck. And so Steve set about to really solve how you would ultimately create a, a, a parallel uh, environment where you can avoid the von Neumann bottleneck, uh, which is all about serial communication, and ultimately speed up your access to data in, in large data stores. Right. So the, I see that the promise uh, of of GeoSpot to its customers is partly to bring all sorts of data together, but also the promise of speed. You promise to customers that we will always deliver an answer in under a minute. I mean, that seems incredible. Yeah, uh, but it's really, really critically important, Charles, I think, uh, as, as we think about the journey into kind of connected society. So we, we, we talk a lot about the role of Internet of Things sensors really becoming the next big economy. So around the world, we're seeing every part of in every industry really beginning to digitize by rolling out Internet of Things. And so the Internet of Things sensor is, is ultimately something that we refer to as the machine-to-machine -machine producer of information. So humans are no longer the biggest producers of data. It's, it's now coming from machines. And how do you harness this vast array of data that is being produced by these sensors? And sensors are us on our mobile phones as citizens, but they're also the fact that cities are beginning to digitize with Bluetooth networks and communication networks that are coming from uh, clever transport systems uh, through to ultimately smart street lighting and, and kind of connected cars. And so the challenge there is, as this data just is pervasive, uh, how do you harness it and how do you translate it into meaningful insights and into decisions ultimately? Yes, let's talk about, in a way, your potential customers. What are the kind of questions that people are going to be able to answer using your services? They're very broad. Uh, firstly, I would say, you know, we're, we're agnostic to industry, but that said, we, we've also focused as a company on the industries that are indeed rolling out uh, large-scale IoT and, and ultimately want to get on top of the data that they're producing. The things that really excite us, I think, Charles, is is um, we feel really passionate that we're in, in, in an industry that ultimately is about change for good. This is ultimately a time where, as the planet digitizes, Actually, you can start to make decisions around fundamentally making change for the better. How, how do we generate city environments that are good for citizens? How, how do you ensure that they are clean, that there's low CO2? How do you plan clean and efficient transport systems? How do those transport systems actually function? So, so we concentrate on topics like multimodal transport. How do you get a bus network, a car network? a train network, a scooter network to actually work and serve citizens, not serve the companies that operate them. And so when you really start to think about data in this context, then the decisions that you're trying to underpin fundamentally are about big changes in life and big changes in our economy. And this is at the heart of what uh, drives us at Geospark. We're really passionate about this change. Right. And yeah, cities is, is, is an area that you're concentrating on. And 
I read in, in on your website, I think, that there are 20,000 smart city projects in the world, and you are working with 70 already in the UK. Well, that's news to me. Can you give me an example of the kind of thing that involves? I can indeed. Uh, yeah, I think ar- around the world, it is great, actually, that we're seeing so many smart cities. Smart city is a concept has been around for about seven or eight years. They tend to start as refreshing infrastructure. So uh, keeping it simple, it's about taking down sodium streetlights and putting up LED streetlights. And so the benefit to local councils is is lower electricity charges. But because you're refreshing that infrastructure, most councils are taking the opportunity to fit those new LED streetlights with IoT sensors and communication infrastructure. So all of a sudden, if we can all picture our streets, now you've got smart streetlights every few yards, every few meters with sensors. And so all of a sudden you can start to track vehicle movements. So you can look at the bus network coming in and out, or you can start to look at transport and how does transport move across the city. So one of our favorite projects in the UK, and it's hard for me to say this as a, as a Cambridge person, but is Oxford. So we power uh, the Oxford Smart County program. And this is indeed a, uh, a model that is being built, uh, an artificial model, to ultimately build a digital shadow of vehicles moving in and out of the county. So it's, it's transport coming in across the boundary. And where does it go? How, do, how long does it stay in a particular location? And where does it go to? So when you get the data from Oxford and you analyze it, is the result more a question of, oh, these traffic lights should change to green more often or something? Or are you saying, no, there should be a bypass here, a long-term sort of project? So, so the outcomes are indeed for the local authority and the transport planning teams, that decision. that they're, they're looking at really, okay, what, what is the demand on our network and, and how should we supply infrastructure for that network? And so that that definitely is linked to change in infrastructure, you know, new roads, uh, the resequencing of traffic lights. And, and actually, uh, that, that is a great topic in its own right. You know, we've got innovation going on in a few cities in the UK where emergency services now are connected through IoT networks. And as an ambulance or a, or a, a fire truck comes down through a busy road, actually, they can get priority through the traffic light system. So it's it's predictive right. that it knows they're there and, and ultimately you can resequence the lights to make sure that there's priority for the emergency vehicles. So I guess that is a rather classic example of what you're talking about, about bringing different sets of data together. If you've got vehicle movements and traffic lights, they're, they're not part of the same system, are they? C- correct. They're in silos. And so that, that's definitely a big challenge uh, that we find with all of the projects we're in is that this infrastructure has been built over years. Uh, all of the different systems feed into their own disparate databases, and none of these databases can share their intelligence. And so when you're thinking about a smart city, actually the, the thing that comes to mind is it's about contextual intelligence. What, what is happening as an ecosystem is what you're trying to get to. I'll give you a, a quick illustration of that, which is let's project forward 10 years and we're thinking about autonomous vehicles trying to run through a city. Uh, cars will communicate to each other. Uh, the cars will be communicating to the infrastructure. So how does an autonomous vehicle make a decision on whether it's safe to overtake the vehicle in front of it or not? Well, it can make a near field decision about, I can't see anything on the road. The car in front of me is going slower. I can overtake. But what it needs to know is that there's an emergency vehicle 
just one mile up the road coming at a particular speed and it isn't safe for that autonomous vehicle to take the decision. And this is contextual intelligence. And so our role in a smart city is about bringing those data sets together so we can ultimately be part of the mobility network and making sure that, that those decisions can be safe. So now you're, you've been speaking at the uh, CoinGeek conference and we haven't used the word uh, Bitcoin or blockchain so far. So how, how does that come into all this? Yeah, so um, delighted to be at this conference, Charles. It's been an amazing experience. And yeah, I think we've noticed really as a company that around the world, uh, cities, transport companies, automotive companies have all started to adopt proof of concepts and trials of different digital ledger technologies. So we've seen blockchain certainly rise as a new technology as an alternative technology to uh, other mechanisms. So for us, you know, in, in the way that we index data today and we post that data to the Amazon cloud and we store it on disk drives in Amazon, why isn't Bitcoin SV both in terms of protocol, but also in terms of what organizations like Tal are doing, the alternative store? And so we, we really see a, a, a situation where today we're dealing with event information coming from sensors but actually the next step is really dealing with the commercial transactions so again a very quick illustration is in the next few years you and i really shouldn't have to worry about waving our credit card in front of a you know electric vehicle charging point we should be able to plug in our car and our car ultimately settles for the amount of time that it's been on the charging station in a public space that ultimately would become a machine to machine commercial transaction and I think we see an opportunity here where Bitcoin SV becomes the digital ledger of choice for those types of transactions in, in the machine-to-machine -machine economy. Right. So you're not particularly talking about Bitcoin SV as a data storage medium. We, we would talk about it both in terms of its uh, transaction uh, infrastructure, its a storage infrastructure, and ultimately our, our role with that would be that you know, we would hope to become the analytics translation layer of that underlying data store. But if you're working with a local council to get their traffic information, for instance, do you have to sort of ingest all that data before you process it? And at the moment, it's going to AWS, I guess, is it? Will, will it continue to go there when you're working more closely with BSV? Uh, I think it will. You know, our, our observation, of course, is we're, <laughs> we're replacing, or society is probably, and industry is replacing one set of silos with potentially uh, another set of silos. You know, we uh, see probably in the Western economies, Google, Microsoft Azure, and Amazon Web Services as the dominant cloud players. They're not the dominant cloud players when you move to Asia. You know, we've got Ali Cloud and Tencent and, and ultimately... Customers, industries making choices between these kind of dominant six to nine cloud infrastructure companies. So at the moment, and probably for the next five to 10 years, what was enterprise storage and having it on site is moving to cloud. And those players are ultimately getting the benefit of that migration. The big opportunity, but equally a challenge for digital ledger technology like uh, Bitcoin SV is, is how to move into that market, how to become an alternative to those big cloud vendors. And just to put this in context, I think it's really important. I was at the Amazon Web Services event in Las Vegas in December of last year, all the days that we could go to 
physical events. And uh, Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon Web Services, made a profound statement on stage saying, Amazon Web Services is a startup. And the challenge of the next few years for AWS is to cross the chasm and become a scale-up. And I think the audience was pretty profound as this $36 billion company declares itself as a startup. But Andy went on to say that actually only 5% of the compute and storage market has moved into cloud. Still in excess of 95% is sitting in enterprise servers. So the opportunity for transformation of data structures is immense. It really is immense. But Enchain's interest in your work must be because they hope that you're going to be moving some of that business onto the blockchain, presumably. Indeed, absolutely. And, and we have the same interest. We think the Bitcoin SV is the most efficient infrastructure in the digital ledger market. I think because of the deep tech approach that Enchain have taken in terms of really thinking through protocols, the ecosystem, and the whole components that need to be in place, yeah, we definitely would like to be in a position where we're ultimately indexing those immutable stores, we're translating into query layers, and that partnership ultimately becomes very deep. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the monetization aspect there, and um, there have been other startups uh, in the in the BSV ecosystem who are talking in terms of micropayments or even nanopayments attached to small data points coming from IoT devices. Does that uh, present opportunities for you as well, do you think? It does, Charles. Yeah, we, we've seen certainly um, a number of coins uh, ultimately trying to become the, the kind of uh, commercial currency for, for IoT. I think it's still very early and nascent for a lot of that, and partly because of enterprises and certainly governments have been hesitant uh, about transitioning to any one single provider. And I'm, I'm saying that also because fundamentally this is about standards and it's about protocols and interoperability. And so I, I don't think you're really going to see national authorities jump on board one single token system or a coin uh, with the promise of that being the nano currency for its machine-to-machine -machine market. Uh, th they ultimately are researching very deeply uh, who is conforming to standards, who will be most interop-capable, and, and ultimately, who can scale. And I think, for me, this is where Bitcoin SV stands out in these areas. At the beginning, you talked about having a sort of ideological component to the, 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 the business and your motivation for the business. And when you talk about data, people are very worried. They think we're being spied on the whole time and so on. But is there a way that we could transform that anxiety into persuading people that there, is, there are good things that can come out of all this data that's flying around, do you think? Uh, definitely. Uh, I, I think part of, uh, I, I think the, the CoinGeek conference has talked a lot about the exchange of value with citizens and that's probably at the heart of this. You know, at the, at the at the heart of this, you've got to build trust with the actors, with with the with the users of the data. And I think ultimately, the day that I am in control of my own data and I've got it in a wallet, and I can choose who I'm going to share that information with for advertising, or who I'm going to share that information with for a loyalty scheme, and I'm beginning to receive benefit, I, I think that that's the the day that we begin to see 
an exchange of value that ultimately really starts to trigger mass adoption of, of this type of ecosystem. We've been talking so far about sort of the ideals and the direction of the business. And we talked about how the technology began with uh, the research of your, your co-founder. But how much of a technical challenge is there left for you in making all this come about, particularly in integrating with BSV? Uh, significant, to be honest, Charles. I think we're, we're still at the very early stages of the big data, extreme data market, even without uh, BSV. Um, the challenge of helping enterprises move to cloud computing, the challenges of coming off old database technology, um, indexing and breaking down silos, powering new machine learning and AI and simulation tools. There is an enormous amount of work just to do in, in that change, but to incorporate in that change that an alternative to cloud is now to go with a digital ledger store there's a lot of technology work to do, but there's also a lot of uh, product and product marketing work to do around helping enterprises get comfortable with that decision. And I, I talked today in my in my session at CoinGeek around recognizing that implementing a new technology is about bringing people on the journey with you. The technology in itself, uh, no matter how evangelical we get about it, is not going to uh, inspire an enterprise customer or a government to jump on board. They need to feel comfortable that the change ultimately will help them deliver the transformation in their businesses, but ultimately help them get the outcomes they're after. And uh, I'm old enough to have been around for frame relay networks and TCP IP networks and voice over IP networks. And I can honestly say in every technology phase I've been in, it's taken many years longer than I originally thought it would. Well, I mean, I think you have the advantage that this is a terrifically interesting subject and, and thank you for, for making it very interesting to, to hear about and uh, very good luck with the business and uh, your, your partnership with Enchain. Thank you, Charles. Really pleasure meeting with you and, and thank you for taking the time to, to talk with us. Well, thank you very much for your time and I hope we can speak again sometime. Look forward to that. Take care. Bye for now. Thanks very much to Richard Baker, and good luck with extracting something intelligent from all those mountains of data. Next week, I'm talking to another collector of information, but in his case, information about Dr. Craig Wright. He is Raman Kasada, and he has curated a remarkable website where you can find out a massive amount of information about Dr. Wright, from his academic achievements to the papers he's published, and a lot of videos as well. So I'll be asking Raman what it's all about and what he has concluded from his study of Dr. Wright. So please join me again next week for another CoinGeek conversation. Until then, from me, Charles Miller, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Mm -hmm.